You're horrendous. You're sorry, suck. You thank you, suck. I liked the um, resolution of the fatwa. Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka The Raj Nation. I am your show's host. I'm also the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. And I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog almondsandasana.com. She's also a yoga instructor and a community activist focused on helping you make positive lifestyle choices that impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's real talk with real people doing real big things to show you the real side of success. In this episode, we sit down with Jeff Carter. Jeff is the co-founder of West Loop Ventures, a venture capital firm here in Chicago. Our topic conversation with Jeff is answering and discussing the question, how can you be investable? Now, before we dive into that conversation, I'd like to extend an invitation. If you are not a member already, join our tribe by going to www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Leave your email address there and you will get an email in your inbox every single Monday when we release new episodes. You'll also get my stories, tips, and advice throughout the week on how to tell your startup story. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation with Jeff Carter. How can you be investable? Let's listen in. I'm trying to make myself more investable. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, we're raising money for fund. Um, so I feel the pain of entrepreneurs. Um, I understand what they're going through. They're trying to raise money. I'm trying to raise money. So I think, though, in the broader sense, um, if you think about things like the future of work, artificial intelligence, robots, big data, all the stuff that's coming down the pipe, you need to figure out ways to make yourself investable so that you don't get commoditized out of a job like I did. Um, and I think it's a, a topic that's salient um, for lots of different occupations other than just entrepreneurship. Can you tell us a little bit more about that getting commoditized out of a job? Yeah, so I was um, a trader on the floor of the Mercantile Exchange and I traded my own money. I didn't have customers. You know, if I had a good day, my wife went to Hermes. If I had a bad day, she went to Walmart, you know. So, um, but I was one of about 15 guys that took control of the CME boardroom um, and started investing in technology and switched it from a open outcry exchange to a computerized exchange from a mutually held company to a publicly listed company that did an IPO in 2002. So to give you some sort of scope of what that was like, um, 
1992, I bought a seat for $580,000. So entrepreneurs often look at me and go, you don't understand what pain is like, all this stuff. I put half down in cash. I had to pay the rest of it off in five years at a point over the prime. Prime rate was 9%. I paid it off in three years, and then I proceeded to lose about $350,000 in 10 minutes. Um, I had to go get a loan, and I paid that off in six weeks. Um, so I understand the ups and downs of yeah, entrepreneurship like really, really well. The other thing that people don't realize is that when you are on the board of directors of an exchange at that time, you were an operator of that exchange. So we ran the committees. We made the decisions. We were like, you know, the executives reported to us. Um, we didn't get in and code and we didn't, you know, but we did write policy and we did do a lot of the things. And so I was a part of the strategic planning committee of about 20 people that actually charted the course of the Merck. Um, and so it was a bigger, it's bigger than just a title, right? Um, so the Merck was very entrepreneurial. The floor was an extremely entrepreneurial place. Um, and I think I reflect that. Now, when I bought my seat in 92, the value of the seat went from 580 to a million dollars by 94, 95. The value of the CME as an entity at that time was maybe a billion dollars, maybe a little over a billion dollars. By 1998, everybody thought we were going out of business and that same seat sold for $280,000. So then um, I sort of angel invested in the firm. Um, I bought another seat. I bought, we had three different seats. I bought another seat for $115,000, paid cash for it, and um, went on the board of directors. And we IPO'd in November of 2002 at $35 a share, which I think the enterprise value was right around $10 billion. Um, today it's a $60 billion company. Um, so subsequent to that, I started. Hyde Park Angels with some classmates, um, and I think we kind of kicked off the organized seed stage evolution in Chicago. So, you know, on our backs came Accelerate Labs in 2009, 2012 was kind of 1871. So um, that was part of making myself investable um, and knowing how to invest. And I, I think. Um, whether you're an entrepreneur or the CEO of a corporation, you have got to know how to do that. So when you look at CEOs on TV, they talk their book all the time, but they're talking to potential shareholders. They're making themselves investable. They're selling. Really making yourself investable is selling um, at its core, right? Right. So how much do you think through that journey from 92 and then starting mm -hmm. these venture funds, yeah. 1871, et cetera. Right. How much did you, I guess, pull from past experience versus have to learn something new on the job? And then how much do you think your personality plays a role in this? Yeah, well, I mean, it just depends. I, I, I mean, um, it's a difficult question to answer. I, um, How much is my personality... I'm, I don't care if I'm out front. Um, I'll take the slings and arrows that come with it. Um, my parents raised me to be a leader. I was always kind of a, a leader in school. I was an athlete. 
I went to the Air Force Academy. You learn leadership there. You learn by following. That's what, um, and I dropped out of there before I finished. But, um, and being tall, you're always kind of looked at um, as a leader. So, and I was a leader on the floor. And, and, and when I led on the floor, uh, you had to marshal a lot of different people with lots of different agendas. I mean, um, it's, I think people underestimate what the trading floors in Chicago were like. Only people that worked on them could really accurately tell you what it was like. But, you know, when you have to make a decision, you're, you're chairman of some committee, okay? And you have to make a decision between two people on who's going to get that spot in that trading pit. And it's a million-dollar decision because if, if this person gets to stand there and the other person doesn't, they can't make as much money. And it's all about making money. It's competitive. It's the most insanely competitive environment in the world. And you had to balance all the different factors and decide who was going to get that spot. Well, that's no different than a lot of CEO decisions that people make. Um, there's people decisions. There's strategic decisions. When we decided, you know, um, when a bunch of us got together in 1995 and six and said, hey, how much is the Merck spending on technology? And they wouldn't show us the books. And we said, wait a minute, we're members here. And we had to fight to get it. And then when we saw what the budget really was, we had to make decisions on how to allocate the capital, you know, and we had limited amounts of capital. And it's not like we could go to the public market at that time and do it because we were the first exchange in the history of the United States even to go public. So, I mean, that, that avenue wasn't out there. Like with entrepreneurs now, it's a pretty easy path. You go, okay, I'm going to go raise some money. I'll talk to a bunch of potential investors and get some money. And I know it's a series seed, pre-seed, whatever, you know, however you structure it. That, that, that we were making that up <laughs> yeah. as we went along. You know, we knew we were going to do an IPO, but, you know, a private equity firm Blackstone approached us in the meantime as well and tried to buy us with our own money. And we listened to a presentation and we decided not to go that route, you know. So, um, I don't know. It's interesting. What about my personality? I just like to do stuff. I've always been independent. Um, I'm not afraid to do things. I was the only white kid at, on a basketball team at Triton junior college for a couple years not the only white kid but just about when I was in high school I would drive to Maywood and play basketball you know and it, it just didn't bother me right um with this with Hyde Park Angels everybody told me I was absolutely insane um I would never make money would never get off the ground um we'd fail who cares you know um so if you have a fear of failure and that you're always looking at the risk and everything, you're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So what are, when you are looking at investor, or when you're looking at people mm -hmm. to invest in, what are people or companies, mm -hmm. I guess, what are sort of like the couple of big things that stand out to you or that you always look for or that, or maybe mm -hmm. that you can look back and say, ah, oh, this is sort of a pattern of this certain traits. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the, Stock answer is because I invest so early and I've always invested very early, it's about people first, right? So you invest in people and virtually everybody will tell you that, right? Um, Steve Kaplan even did a study and showed that early stage investors invest in teams, not ideas, and later stage investors invest in ideas and not necessarily teams because they'll find a new team to come in and <laughs> operate the idea. Um, what characteristics 
that is such a hard thing because people are so random. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a bell curve of people, right, what's the variance of that bell curve? It's a wide bell curve, right? And so um, that's why there's a lot of failure, I think, in entrepreneurship because the bell curve is so wide and it's so random. Um, entrepreneurs that have been successful that I've invested in, what traits do they have? Um, usually they're solving a problem that they had, you know? Um, so they're relatable to their own product. They're solving their, their own problem. So, if, I mean, one that hops to mind is um, Catlin Smith from Simple Mills, right? So I was dragged kicking and screaming into that deal by Mark Tebby because I don't like to do consumer products. Um, but she had a problem with her diet and fixed it. And it turned out to be a scalable solution like Simple Mills, right? Can you um, explore? I've read, I've read a little bit. Oh, it's a gluten-free, uh, what it started out to be was just a gluten-free muffin mix. Um, they have muffins, bread, cookies, crackers. You can get them at Whole Foods, Target. I mean, she's got nationwide distribution, and she came out of the University of Chicago. She won the New Venture Challenge. It's, it's, she can get them online. When, we, when I met her, um, they had distribution in some grocery stores in the South, some specialty grocery, but they were the number one selling gluten-free muffin mix on Amazon. So there was proof, yeah. right? Um, as far as her ability to sell herself and stuff, she was very poised. She didn't stutter a lot. Um, she knew the problem. She knew the solution. She knew the market. She was very capable in the way she answered the questions and you could just tell that this person could probably do this. Um, comp even companies that failed. Um, I, another consumer products company where a guy solved a problem. Um, he was a college athlete, played on the University of Colorado football team. They won the national championship. He was in my MBA class and um, had a product called Win Products that got the stink out of clothes, workout clothes, right? Um, and I invested in it. It totally failed. Um, but he was solving a problem. He was able to sell himself. The problem was the execution of the company and profit margins and other things. Another guy in my MBA class was a guy named Brian Johnson who sold Braintree for $800 million to oh, PayPal. <laughs> and um, Brian just... He didn't personally have the problem, but he had been working at Sears Credit and saw the problem and then built the company to solve that particular problem. He was a great salesperson. He was a great manager. Um, bootstrapped that company, by the way. Never took VC money until he started in 07, won the new venture challenge, took his first round of venture capital in 2011. So, I mean, um, but a great entrepreneur, um, who also was smart enough to get customers early. So if you think about 2007, what companies were starting? Um, Brian got Groupon, fastest growing Chicago internet company in history. He became, a, you know, they became a customer. He got Uber, he got Airbnb, he got, you know, so he was able to go to those companies when a lot of people wouldn't, and he had the wherewithal and the world vision to go after them because he could sign them up, you know? Um, 
other his competitors weren't doing that. So I think that's another thing um, um, that great entrepreneurs have is the ability to do the unexpected. So it's really easy to do the expected because everybody can think linearly. But the great outbreaks in innovation and the great entrepreneurs do the unexpected. So yeah, maybe you should, you know, I do B2B FinTech now, so maybe you should call on JP Morgan, right? You try to get a bank and stuff, but maybe, maybe you go after some dark part of B2B FinTech where there's a lot of nefarious activity or maybe there's a lot of scumbags and you clean it up or, you know, I mean, maybe you go to a broker-dealer network. Maybe, you know, there's all different facets and maybe that's the best place to get proof of concept, you know? I mean, because JP Morgan's going to be a long sales cycle, depends on your technology, you know? So I think they do the unexpected and, um, you know, I think not to be... Um, ethnocentric about universities but if you look at you know Chicago Booth where I got my MBA the entire economics department the Chicago School of Economics is the unexpected mm. I mean it's these things that you don't you think after you look in the rearview mirror you go oh that's totally obvious you know if you look at um, for instance um, Merton Miller's definitions on corporate finance and stock splitting you know he, he said well it's like I've got a dollar in one pocket and four quarters in the other well it's intuitively obvious that that's the same yeah. and a four for one stock split is the same but you know he had a lot of math that proved that you shouldn't necessarily split stock and that there is no value created and that people don't really buy the shares just because they're cheaper you know and there's a lot of stuff like that that comes out of Chicago that's counterintuitive. Mm. And it's really interesting. And, you know, here you've got a guy, Brian Johnson, who did The Unexpected, who got his degree at Chicago. You know, Catlin Mills got her degree at Chicago. I mean, they're churning out great entrepreneurs, yeah. and that's great for Chicago, the, the ecosystem here as well. Yeah. So. No, I was just going to say, do you, um, do you find, like, or maybe, I don't know how much you've thought about this, but looking back, are many of the people or companies you've invested in, are they first-time entrepreneurs who maybe have a background in corporate or in something else, or are they people who've done this over and over? Yeah. Um, so with Hyde Park Angels, there were a fair amount of first-time entrepreneurs. With um, what we're doing now, we see some... It just depends on how you define entrepreneur. So we closed a deal yesterday. I really can't say the company or anything like that. But the entrepreneur did entrepreneurial things inside companies prior to doing this, right? Um, in some cases, like let's say you're meeting um, a college student that hacks something together in a dorm room, you know, a bunch of people with Red Bull, you know. Um, maybe it's their first time building a company, but maybe they were the kid that went out and had a paper route or they had a lemonade stand or, you know, they sold yeah, subscriptions yeah. or, you know, th there was something Usually in there. They've done something you else. can ask, you know, yeah. what did you do in your life? Did you mow lawns and set up a business doing that? You know, what did you do in your life that was entrepreneurial? Yeah. And I like where you're going with this because so through my business where I'm working with these startups, right? Right. right. One of the things... 
I hear, I often come across with these entrepreneurs is how easily they'll brush over past experience, thinking it's not relevant or because right. it's not directly related to the business they're doing now, it's not important and not worth sharing and oh, people won't take me seriously. Though. Yeah. When the reality is, especially if this is your first like real company, right, where you're trying to raise money, right, you have to show some type of not just this is what I do for a job, but this is the way I'm wired. Yeah. Right. Um, whether it is the lemonade stand, you know, like I not that right. I, not that I personally am trying to raise money, but like my first business, quote unquote, was taking someone's Pokemon cards and selling them on his behalf to the other students at school. There you go. And taking a commission out of that. Right. Um, but that's entrepreneurship. Yeah, and it's I think it's a matter of and you know something I work with them very closely on is being able to communicate how what you're doing now with this company is really just an extension of the way you think. Yeah. And I think that's a big selling point in terms of being investable. Yep. Um, you know, Simon Sinek has the whole start with why concept, mm -hmm. relating it to your personal why, though, not just what's the why right. of the company. Right. But why do I believe this? And what is my ultimate vision? And the more articulate and clear you can be about that, the more, you know, and as Simon Sinek explains in his TED Talk and in his book, mm -hmm. It's a biological emotion you can tap into, not a psychological, yeah. but it's a biological thing you tap into right. because you're speaking to someone's limbic system at that point, mm -hmm. the part of the brain that processes emotion. Right. And you can have a bunch of facts and figures on your whiteboard, in your pitch deck, on your executive summary and everything. Yeah. But if that's all you are as a person, is a pitch deck, is a white paper. Right. What are you buying into? You're buying into an, an idea that maybe has some traction. As an investor, right? you're basically going to say, okay, so I, what am I going to buy into? An idea that has some traction and I can't, I don't know what anything about this person. I don't know if I can trust them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they have any type of resilience. Uh, yeah, well, resilience is a different topic, but that's, if you can't be an entrepreneur without being resilient. You want to talk more that's, about that? You, you just can't. Um, because you're going to get knocked down and you have to get up and you have to always just get up. It's kind of like um, ants when you dig a, when you, when you, when you mess, when, like when I was a little kid, I used to like to mess with ant holes. You <laughs> know, like a nice kid. Yeah, I had nothing to do. And you'd watch him redig that hole over and over again. And that's what the entrepreneur has to do. I mean, um, oh, I like that. They you just, just wanted to keep messing with Yeah, them. well, it's funny to watch them. But, um, and, and if you just have to, I mean, if you look at wild animals, like you go to Africa, right? Or you go on YouTube and you watch like lions attacking hippos or whatever. And the fight for life to like so live and survive yeah. is so strong that they will do anything to do it, right? Um, and and uh, entrepreneurs have to be that way where, you know, it's the end, but you, you're still fighting. Yeah. Um, there's a time when it's the end and you got to say, you know, uh, this is this is not going to go my way. And you try to exit as gracefully as you can. But you got to if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to to put it all on the line and do that and then be resilient, you know, because you're going to get told no by every customer, you know. You're going to get told, no, I need an engineer. You're going to try to go hire 20 engineers, and they're all going to say, screw you. I can go make 500000 working for Google, you know, 
you got to be used to that, you know. So if yeah. you can't deal with rejection, you can't be in an entrepreneurial role. Right, right. You just can't do it. And you're not going to be CEO of a corporation either. Yeah. Well, and I know even like, you know, some of the founders I'll talk to now, you know, I've gotten to a point where I can start to, with my business, I've gotten mm-hmm. to a point where I can start to say, I do want to work with you versus I don't, you know, yeah. I, I think you'd make sense to work right, with versus right. no, like, it'd be a waste of your money, it'd be a waste of mm-hmm. my time kind of thing. Sure. And, you know, I'll, I'll run into a handful of instances where, you know, like just recently, actually, um, I was talking to a founder and they were just saying how much a solo founder, didn't have a team yet, mm-hmm. wanted to raise money within the next six, 30 days. And that also is a sign to me is like, okay, you don't understand. You don't understand. This yeah, this is not good. People yeah. don't just, you know, you don't just walk on the street and say, money, yeah. please, yeah, money. Yeah. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Um, you know, I always tell them like three to six months if you're ready and potentially longer. Yeah. But not only was it a situation of that, it was also a, what they told me was like, they absolutely hate having to like campaign for their company and don't like being the person who's out front and center, which you've said, like, you don't have to be that person, but if you don't have anyone else, yeah, yeah, you do have to be that person. You got to be that person. And so I told him, I was like, you either have to find a co-founder for this, who's going to be that front, that front facing person, or you're never like... You're not going to get any. We just don't expect money from anyone. Sometimes it's framing too. I hate raising money. Um, it's such a, uh, it's a hard thing to do. But if you frame it in the way, and this is how sales, this is, yeah. I'm stealing from Craig Wartman, who's mm-hmm. a professor at Northwestern now. You're actually doing them a service because you're offering them a good or service that they can't otherwise yeah. get. And you're doing them a favor. Mm-hmm. If you look at it that way, it, it comes different. But if, if you're not willing to campaign for yourself, nobody else is going to campaign for you. Yeah. So, um, and it shows that you believe in what you're doing. Um, I don't think, you know, I think that people say, you know, follow your passion. They're full of shit. I don't think that's right at all. Um, if I was following my passion, this is not what I would be doing. Um, I'm passionate about it. I like it. But, you know, I've got other things I'm passionate about. You know, I like working in the woods too you know and I like gardening and I like you know cooking and a lot of other things but I, I can't make a business out of it yeah um or earn a living off it um and I can't get any return out of it so um I think what you wind up doing is you should what Mark Cuban says is follow your effort so where are you putting your effort right and if you follow your effort it will eventually become your passion um, but you have to, because this is so hard, entrepreneurship is so hard, <laughs> and the, 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 the uh, probability of failure is so high that if you're not willing to put in the effort, it's not w- worth doing. Yeah. And so just having passion isn't going to sustain you. So like when I, when, I, when I became a trader, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to grow, wake up in the morning and watch um, Orion Samuelson's Farm Report before Ray Rayner. I got up at 6.30 every day, you know, or 6 o'clock and watch it. And wow. it was so cool to me. Like these pictures of these guys. And then this guy took me on the floor who, and it was like the first time. And I was like, wow, this is cool. Well, it turns out in school, I really liked studying about markets, you know. And I took my college loan 
And instead of paying for college, I invested it and I doubled my money. And, you know, I mean, so that was kind of my effort, right? And that became my passion. And so, um, and I always liked startups. I always liked listening to business plans and stuff. And, and that was, so I followed my effort, right? And became passionate about it. So I think entrepreneurs are no different. Um, you, you follow your effort. And if it's just a job, you're going to burn out. I think, so I, I like that you said, like, follow your passion is bullshit. I yeah. used to be one of the champions of follow your passion. Yeah, yeah. I kind of hate that I was that. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I will say, indirectly, I ha- I basically make money off of everything I am passionate about at this point, which is right, nice. But it's your effort. It's the effort. And, right. and I, I think I mentioned this on a previous episode at some point, but most people don't know, and I only found this out very recently, the Latin root of the word passion is passi, which means to undertake or to suffer. So what I tell people now is, <laughs> unless you're willing to suffer for it, it's not a passion. It's just, so, if you only do it when you like it, it's just something you like. It's right. a hobby, that's fine. Right. It's totally cool, right? That's right. But you can't really say you're passionate about it if you're not willing to do it even on your worst day. Mm-hmm. Even if when you look at this computer screen and you hate yourself and you hate the thing, mm-hmm. you're not still willing to plug away anyways and redig the antelope, True. as you said. And that's, I think, the um, that's sort of that defi- dividing line where it's like you can say follow your passion and you can say it's my passion and I'm doing it because it's my passion if passion is used in the truest sense of the word mm-hmm. that it is my it's my struggle it's my suffering yeah right like yeah. like the passion of the Christ the title right, right. It, it wasn't the really good great life of Christ no. it was the suffering of the yeah, Christ yeah <laughs> yeah it's true and I think I think. Um, to tie it back to investability, you sense that as an investor and you find, you see that, right? Like people get energetic when they talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, um, they're not passive. They don't use a passive voice. Um, you know, um, like if I, if I watch, I'm trying to think of somebody in, like if I watch Troy Hanikoff talk about what he does, uh, tech stars, math. Well, he's not with them anymore. Right? Yeah, tech stars, math, whatever. Yeah. He's pat. You can you you get it. You sense vitality in how he's talking about it. Let's pause 60 seconds for this public service announcement for you startup founders out there listening. The Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast is brought to you by Raj Nation Innovation. If you are not familiar yet with Raj Nation Innovation, let me tell you real quick. I talk to founders pretty much every day who flat out tell me, "Raj, we suck at telling our story." Well, my job is to remove the suck. With Raj Nation Innovation, I blend a unique background in both branding and songwriting because, as I'm sure you know if you've been listening to this show, I am also a hip-hop artist, and so I look at business communication through the lens of entertainment and performance. And with that approach, I partner with growth-focused startups to help them develop their pitch, their story, and their message so they can go raise investor capital and acquire their early customers. Companies like FanFood, Keo, Jiffy Rides, Muses, and more have all gone through my signature brand communication playbook and come out on the other side winning pitch competitions, raising seed funding, and being masters of telling their story. Holler at me at www.rajnationinnovation.com. That's R-A-J nationinnovation.com. Back now to the show. In the recent, it's funny, like, not to get political, um, but... If you if you lined up the sixteen Republican candidates, okay, um, in the debates, 
there were people that were talking about stuff and it was just a job. Mm-hmm. It was matter of fact. Like when I heard Lindsey Graham talk, I was like, he's not selling the why. Oh yeah, Donald's had it very passionate. <laughs> Donald Trump yeah. sold the why. Yeah. yeah. He was passionate. Yeah. I mean, he followed his effort and he was passionate about it. And and if I talk to people, like you might not like that Trump's president or you might like it, whatever. <laughs> but, but he did that. But if I said, what was Hillary's campaign slogan? Yeah. Oh, it's like you yeah, read my yeah. article on nobody. Yeah. Nobody can say it. <laughs> I literally wrote an article, on this. right? And everybody can say Trump's. Mm-hmm. If I go back to 2012 or 2008, and I say what was Obama's, especially 2008, yeah. what was Obama's campaign slogan, and what was McCain's? Mm-hmm. Nobody can name McCain's. You are literally like right. Done so yeah, many talks. And it's so oh it's God. so true, yeah. right? And so. And so um, if I go back even to, to Reagan in 1980 yeah. or 84, he sold the why and he sold the passion and people and passion. If you do that, you can lead because people will follow you. Yeah. And it, it goes even to great generals, right? If you look at the great admirals and generals in American history or in history in general, but I'm only familiar with the ones in America. You know, you start to tick them off, right? You know, there's Patton and there's Bull Halsey and there's, you know, Paul, Paul uh, John Crystal, Paul Jones yeah. and, you know, Washington and, you know, you, you can go on uh, Grant, sure. Sherman through Georgia. You can go on and on about the different ones, right? I mean, if you watch, uh, um, you know, my daughter was born in 91, so we spent a lot of time just sitting in front of the TV watching um, Norman Schwarzkopf talk, give his daily briefing, and he... I mean, you wanted to follow that guy, you know, and and great CEOs are like that as well. Mm-hmm. Great CEOs are, you just look at them and you're like, I, I want to get, I'll go to bat for that guy. I will die for that guy. I will do anything for that guy. Steve, Steve Jobs or Jobs, I don't know how you say his name, but he's kind of that way. <laughs> Wait, the Apple guy? Yeah. I, Jobs. I, I, Jobs. Why would it be Jobs? <laughs> Shit, I don't know. I don't know how to say his name. But, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, jobs, jobs, I don't know. But Tim Cook is not that guy. Yeah. Right, right. You know what's interesting, too, mm-hmm. that if you've noticed, so under jobs, the Apple mission statement was um, essentially like we build, like we enhance the human experience. Yeah. We bring color, not, not we bring right. color, but those kinds of things. Like it was built around the idea of enhancing the human experience. And that was like the opening line. Yeah. Some variation of that. Since Tim Cook took over, their mission statement just became an explanation of what they sell. It was like literally the right. first line is, Apple is the creator of the iLife suite, uh, the MacBook, the Apple, the iPad, and I, you know, and I'm like, that's not, I'll take you're a, literally just showing me like what's on the aisle. I'll take a yeah. Google Pixel, please. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and if I think about like in my own life, if I think about like I had some shitty basketball and football, co- I had great ones. And like... You know, the great ones would give you something to hang on to. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I can, I will, I must. That's that's resiliency. That's you're not going to fail. You're not going to let yourself fail. Gene Smithson, I'd go to this basketball camp at Illinois State, and Gene Smithson was an assistant coach and then the head coach at Illinois State. And he came up with this thing called MTXE, Mental Toughness Extra Effort. And he would put it on all their uniforms. And he was like, you are just going to, you are going to do this. Mm-hmm. There's not, you're not going to get stopped, Right. And, and that's what great entrepreneurs are about, and that's what makes them investable. Yeah. Um, um, we're in the offices of Halo Investing, and when I talk to Bijou about his company, you can just sense it. 
you know, and they will find a way. You got to find a way. Yeah. You have to find a way. And, you know, different entrepreneurs do it for different reasons. Um, some of them do it because they truly just have to solve this problem and they're driven. Some of them do it out of responsibility to their investors. I've raised all this money. God, I can't lose it. Some of them do it because I've hired all these people. They're depending on me and I have to do it because they're depending on me. And there's all different reasons why you do what you do. But, you know, at the end of the day, you just can't let yourself fail. I think so, Victoria, I want to give you a chance to have some insight here. So um, in general, the concept of being investable is basically selling the idea of yourself or the thing you're doing at the end of the day. Um, persuasion, ultimately. So in the yoga community, what you're building right now is basically a brand around your philosophies of life, your style of teaching, and aligning people under that who want to believe in those same things or follow those same thought patterns. So when you think about how you approach a class or even with your blog, how do you kind of navigate or, or approach the basically concept of like, I need to get these students to buy into what I'm going, what I'm going to teach them and not yeah. treat it, not dismiss it, not treat it as this is crap. I need to be going to a different teacher. She doesn't know what she's talking about. So this has recently shifted a little bit. We just had this conversation <laughs> about <clears throat> at first, I think there is a tendency to just give people in this particular realm that we're talking about in yoga, give people that immediate thing that they want. Mm -hmm. So they want fast movement, they want their workout, they want this, they want that. But I think from a long-term perspective of building a following of people who come back and come back and come back to you as mm -hmm. the teacher, as their, you know, as the person they're sort of following, is showing them through a longer term process that they're improving in some way, that they're gaining something from it. So it's not just that they're coming in, they're sweating and they're getting a workout mm -hmm. and they leave, but that, you know, for a month they've been working on doing crow pose and now they can do crow pose. Mm -hmm. Or for the last month they've been adding a minute on every day of meditating and now they can actually sit in stillness and meditate for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I think it's proving out that the process you're taking people through actually gets them some end result that's not just the quick fix. Mm -hmm. And that's more the approach that I'm, I've, wa I've, I've wanted to do that for a while. I just hadn't like stepped back and actually taken the time to really think through it. And I was just recently at a training that we, we talked a lot about this. And so that's something that I'm excited about doing going forward and not just in yoga, but then in my blog and, and other things as well, having a larger, broader, long-term theme to really show people the, the bigger impact or the bigger change mm -hmm. that they're able to get out of whatever whatever it is that I'm trying to teach them. I think ultimately my, like I've been thinking about this in this conversation about what's your effort, mm -hmm. is I like, um, or I think I'm good at teaching people how to do things better. 
mm. or like teaching them how to do processes more efficiently mm-hmm. or so they know how to do it yeah so they know how to do it and then eventually then and then they can do it on their own hopefully um, but yes so I think that's something I've always liked doing is taking something that works looking at it and thinking about how you can do it better mm-hmm. or you know more efficiently the engineer thing right yeah. more efficiently whether that's cooking mm-hmm. meal prep I mean it, you know it's silly meal prep mm-hmm. but it, it's true you, if you don't set it's yourself up to be successful during the week at the beginning and here's how you can do it um, and you know it's the same thing with yoga if you just go in and you flail your body around you're probably going to hurt yourself and ultimately you're not going to like yoga and you're not going to grow in any sort of way. But if you have a process and you do it, mm-hmm. you commit to it. So. Jeff, you do. You've mentioned you practice Iyengar yoga. Iyengar, yeah. What keeps you coming? And how, how long have you been practicing and what keeps you coming back? Uh, how long have I practiced? Over three years. Okay. Same instructors. Um, what keeps me coming back? My body feels better. Um, I, you know, yoga is such a weird thing. At the be- and different disciplines are different. But with um, Iyengar, it's about alignment. Not only your physical, but your spiritual and mental inside alignment. It's actually more about the inside than it is the outside. The outside is manifesting the itself, vessel. right? Um, and... Um, so the beginning of it was just putting yourself in a position, you know. Can I do Utnasana, you know? Um, and now, you know, I could never do headstand till this year. Now Congrats. I can. Now I can do a headstand. Not a yeah headstand. Yeah, yeah. headstand. Um, and that's the first time in my life I've ever done a headstand. Um, I was an athlete. Growing up, I was pretty good. I was probably top 50 basketball players in the state of Illinois. I was super flexible, but, um, you know, I'm 55 years old now, so it's different. Um, and so and I do it. My wife likes doing it, so it's something we can do together. It turns out I wind up in a class with people that I like, so there's some community around the class. And I like the instructor because it challenges me mentally. Um it's more about it's the physical now but it's also the mental and so that's interesting i was i've always been kind of a psychological mental guy trading was physical and it was you know stressful if you let it be stressful but it was more about your mental preparation and your psychology than anything else and entrepreneurship's about that too Um, you have to get excited but you have to keep an even keel you know um what happens when things don't work out what happens when you just raised money at uh 100 million dollars things didn't work out and now people want to raise money at 50 million you know i mean that's a blow so it sounds like for you, yoga, kind of like what I was saying, it's that you've seen some sort of progression, whether it's yeah. physical, like you well, can now stand on your head, but, but from the mental standpoint, now you know it sounds like you've obviously, you came mm-hmm. at it from you know just sort of thinking, oh, maybe I'll be able to fold forward or whatever, and now it's become this. Right. Sort of I, I would have been a significantly better athlete and trader had I done yoga. Mm-hmm. But when I was that age, I would have made fun of you yeah yeah. and you would have wanted it to be like your workout and go through it or well i don't know you know but i would have made total fun of you um i would have derided you i would have for as long as we were around each other 
to the point we're being mean probably. But, um, and I tried different styles. My daughter took me to this hot yoga. I didn't like that. Um, I went to vinyasa. I didn't like that. I tried this other and didn't like that. You know, and I finally found Iyengar um, on the recommendation of somebody. I was like, nah, you know, and I went and I kept going and turns out I like it. So it suits my personality. Um, others maybe not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but even and then to kind of bring it back to the entrepreneur perspective, it really is that same thing in terms of being investable in a money sense. Is are you able to show progress mm-hmm. slash traction? Yeah. Um, can you show people a destination they're trying to? I mean, technically, there's no destination in yoga, but you can have these mini destinations. But you can right? say, yeah, yeah, I'm here are these mile markers to, we're working right, towards to get to a headstand, yeah. to get to a meditation, mm-hmm. whatever. And then the ultimate vision of the company is the theme you're trying to build mm-hmm. and put out into the world. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah, I think most I think most CEOs would be better if they did yoga. Believe it or not. Totally. Just because it. Like, you, there is no such thing as work, work-life balance when you're an entrepreneur. That's a total bullshit thing. I know it's, like, a hot thing. And, like, I got, got to shut it off and I'm going to go. Like, But you never really shut it off. And, um, I mean, when I was trading, I never shut it off. Even when the markets weren't open 24 hours, I was thinking about it. Yeah, you it. think about it. Yeah, because you mean, enjoy it. Yeah. And, and now I never shut it off. I'm, I'm always – the companies that I'm invested in, I'm always thinking about them. Even the – you know, I so I invested in twenty three companies before I did West Loop Ventures with Kenny. I always think about those twenty three companies. They're always around. So if I have a random interaction with somebody, I can say, Hey. Yeah. You know? And so it's just the way you're wired. I think humans are wired that way. So um, yoga helps you with that, I think. But hey. I'm just one person, so. So let's talk for a few minutes specifically about West Loop Ventures. I mm-hmm. think you kind of espoused the philosophies you have <laughs> so far, but yeah, um, you know. So at the surface level, West Loop Ventures is a venture capital firm. It's your newest baby, so right. to speak. Can you allow our listeners? It'll be my know? last baby because <laughs> um, of my know? age. You know. Yeah. Um, my partner's young. It won't be his last baby. It'll, but um, it'll be my last baby. So. So with that, can you just let our listeners know why this is about more than just being another VC firm? Um, yeah, so I did a lot of investing in lots of different stuff. Um, some are really great companies, some failed, some, you know, and Hyde Park Angels was great. Um, I had a difference of opinion with uh, some of the people in Hyde Park Angels over the way the organization should go, so I left. Um, I tolerated it for a couple years, and then I got out. Um, And um, with West Loop Ventures, what happened was I met Kenny through a person that put us together who wanted to invest in a fund. and uh, frankly, he backed out. And the reason he backed out was I was a Republican, and he would—he was—he's a Democrat, and he goes, "I will never invest in a Republican." <laughs> and I said, "Okay, if you want to be discriminatory, that's fine. It's your capital; you can do whatever you want." You know. Um, and I find in the venture space, by the way, I think there is a lot of discrimination against Republicans mm-hmm. um, and conservatives in general. And we saw it at Google, and we see it you know, in a lot of different places. Um, 
not real tolerant, um, despite what they they think. Um, they think they're libertarians, but they're not. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So when Kenny and I got together, um, you know, we were traders. Kenny was an electronic trader. He was very entrepreneurial his whole life. Um, wound up working for Gecko at age 18, which was one of the first HFT firms in um, the world. And in uh, one of Michael Lewis's books, I can't remember which one, is The Pariah. You know, they're the reason the markets are screwed up. It's not exactly true. I mean, um, I was one of the guys at CME that ushered in the HFT world, right? You know, so they wouldn't be there without what we did at CME. So um, I think Michael Lewis is way too simplistic on that. But Kenny at age 18 started there. Um, he started his own real estate fund when he went to college and bought houses. I mean, so he's really entrepreneurial and was a trader. And I was entrepreneurial and a trader. And we said, okay, we're stupid traders. Where do we have an edge? Because traders always want to have the edge. Um, where we have an edge that we can exploit over everybody else in the world is Number one, we understand business-to-business -business fintech better than any fund out there in the United States. There isn't a fund that understands it better than us. And we're only a two-person shop and we're just getting going. But if you look at funds in Silicon Valley, they definitely don't get it. And the reason I know that is you talk to entrepreneurs that have tried to raise money that are in B2B fintech, they will come back and tell you that those funds don't get it. That the partners on those funds that understand fintech they understand payments or wealth management or sort of B2C plays, but they really don't get the guts and glue of what makes a bank, an insurance company, a capital market operate. And that's where the big money is. So 67% of a bank's cost of goods sold is in the back office. Nothing's been done there to innovate it. Nothing. So we talk to banks all the time. They're innovation officers. If you look at banks, insurance companies, whatever, virtually all of them have an innovation officer, some sort of incubator, some maybe a venture fund. They're trying to pivot the battleship, or more likely an aircraft carrier, to, um, to uh, get innovation in-house because they see it coming. Um, when we were at CME, uh, CME was the most innovative exchange in the world, um, and you know, you'd try to do stuff. Now, has CME innovated really much since the IPO? Not at all. It's not one new contract that they've listed that's been successful. They're going to list Bitcoin futures here pretty quick, but they haven't innovated. They're a big corporate giant. What does CME do? They buy innovation. What does JP Morgan do? They buy innovation. All of them buy innovation. So where is that innovation built? So if we look historically where that, where the engineers reside that builds B2B FinTech innovation, it's in Chicago, Toronto, New York, kind of Atlanta, you know, St. Louis maybe, maybe Austin, Texas. I didn't say San Francisco. <laughs> That's because they're not there. So in 1998, you had this big internet bubble, right? Bunch of engineers out there. The bubble burst in 2001. Engineers couldn't, it was, they call it the nuclear winter, right? Couldn't get a fucking job. You can't get funding, you know. And um, a lot of those engineers wound up in banking. 
because banks could hire. They came to Chicago. They came to New York, right? The futures industry went started going electronic in 97. High frequency trading started to really come in around 98, 99. That's when they were hiring the engineers. So if you had any fintech knowledge at all, you came to Chicago. So if you went to jump trading, DRW, get-go, whatever, everybody graduated from the best engineers in schools in the country. Stanford, Illinois, MIT, Cal, you, you, we could name them, right? And then in 2008, when the banks blew up, well, if you were in fintech and you wanted a job, you came to Chicago because the HFT firms hired you. And they're still here. So what's happening in the HFT industry is it's contracting. And it's gotten a lot more competitive because there's less volatility. If you look at the VIX in the market, there's less volatility. The market's gotten a lot more efficient. So it's tougher to make money. And so these shops are consolidating. Well, they don't need as many engineers. And they're also, you know, maybe been in the industry 14, 15 years, know where a lot of the problems lie, and they'll poke their head up and go, hey, I could build a company. And they're building companies. Well, they're not, they don't want to go to the valley. They got kids, you know? They don't, they're here. It's expensive. They like Chicago. They like New York. They like, you know, they want to stay in place. And so we have a huge edge because we see deals that nobody else sees. And by the way, I sent a deal out just the other day. I sent a Chicago-based deal. I'm not going to talk about which one. To some of my friends who invest in Silicon Valley. And they came back and they're like, this I don't understand. It's above my pay grade. It's it involves revenue? What? No, no. It's not, it's not <laughs> revenue. It's even just yeah. the concept. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we have a gigantic edge. Well, from Kenny and I's perspective, it's like, okay, so we know all the people. We know all the players. I have a suit network. He has an engineer network. We're in Chicago, which is ground zero for this stuff. We have connections in New York and Toronto and stuff. You look at the biggest innovation. What's the biggest innovation in the internet today? It's cryptocurrency. It's blockchain. We totally get that, right? Um, and then when we think about the back office, we get that. And we get two-sided markets and capital markets. And the homes to those are here, right? So the largest exchange in the world is in Chicago. One of the second largest exchanges in the world is in Chicago, CBOE. One of the largest clearinghouses in the world, the OCC, is in Chicago. Then you go to New York, and it's New York, you know? So um, we have a gigantic edge. And uh, so now we're just trying to exploit the edge. Now the other, there's tertiary, secondary and tertiary things that we kind of have missions about. And one is, hey, you know, Kenny grew up here. I grew up here. We love the city. The city's going to crap because it's been poorly managed. And we can create something here that's going to be great, you know? And uh, we're not going to save the city, but we can create a lot of opportunities for a lot of people and um, create some really big companies out of it. Um, the third thing is we just believe in markets and fintech and stuff, and and we want to kind of teach people about that. And, you know, selfishly, I think that capital markets are misunderstood by everybody. Um, people think that a lot of things in America are free market, and they're not. Um, you know, the healthcare market is anything but a free market. It's got, you know, price floors, ceilings, mandates, you know, it's the most fucked up market I've ever seen. 
um, they look at the airlines and the guy getting dragged off the plane and they go, oh, it's because of deregulation and free markets and that's not even close to true, you know? So people don't even understand what a market is anymore. And so part of it is teaching people what a market really is. Yeah. So not only... So, really, so that's, I guess, why we do what we do. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fantastic. And I think um, sort of the this, this summary statement of that would be for West Loop Ventures, it's not only that you're putting in capital in terms of dollars, yeah. you are providing the authoritative intellectual capital in this specific domain. Yeah, I mean, and, and we can help out. Like, you know, do you need to meet this guy or this woman or this person? Yeah, okay, well, we'll make that happen. You know, and we work our network and make it happen. And um, so it's... It's different. Like there's people that say they're active investors and what they really mean by that is they have a lot of board positions and they're a judge and a jury and, you know, rather than being active. And we will not invest in a firm unless we can add value at an early stage. And that's one question we always ask ourselves is, hey, this may be a great business, but can we add any value? And if we can't add any value, then we're commodity money. Well, we know what commodity money is. Commodity money is retail, and that's what we used to trade against, and they always lost money. <laughs> Where can our listeners um, learn more about West Loop Ventures, potentially get in touch with you? Uh, Westloopventures.com is our website. You can contact us there. Um, I blog every single day at pointsandfigures.com. Um, I'm on and, and figures.com. Um, I, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at points and figures, but it's not an and it's just an N. Um, so I'm the oldest man in social media. People tell me. Right? <laughs> but, so just search oldest man. Yeah. yeah. So no, I'm not anymore. Most but, hair on social media. Yeah. About it. But it's, you know, I mean, and like, I don't pay for followers. It's just, I put out whatever I feel. It's sure. all about me. And what I feel that day and whatever. And I don't, you know, I mean, one of the things from my life going to the Air Force Academy for the short time I did and then being on the trading floor is, you know, at Air Force it was, you know, we will not lie, cheat, steal, nor tolerate anyone among us who would. That's the honor code, you know. On the floor it was your word is your bond. So if you didn't follow through and if you didn't do what you were going to say, you were out. Yeah. And um, we treat entrepreneurs that way. And I treat sort of friends and sort of my blog and everything else that way I am who I am you know I'm not changing that and if it's blunt sorry mm -hmm. um, and we'll tell entrepreneurs hey we're being blunt we're sorry but they should look at that criticism as if it's criticism as favorable because you don't get that from venture capitalists most venture capitalists are full of shit and they'll say oh and the entrepreneur will walk away and say that was a great meeting Oh, man, was that great. Well, yeah. did you get a check? No. <laughs> Do you have a follow-up meeting? Well, no. It's just like sales. It's literally, it's literally it how sales works. Yeah. It's, it's the same. Yeah. And so, and so, like, and I'll hear from an entrepreneur, oh, I had a great meeting with them. Okay, well, are you going to follow-up? Do you get an order? Did you get, <laughs> well, we're going to keep talking. Well, great. Well, you know? keep talking. <laughs> and, and my advice to entrepreneurs, contrary to a lot of VCs, is don't eat, don't, if you can avoid the VC market, avoid it. It's the most expensive capital on the street because you have to give up equity. And that's you. That's a piece of you. And so every time you sell a piece of your company, you're selling a piece of you to somebody else and you're giving them control. So if you can bootstrap best, if you can grow from cash flow, great. 
If you can get a bank loan and a line of credit, that's good too, if, as long as you can pay it. If you have to go to venture capital, go to venture capital, but it should be a last resort, not the first resort. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up then, uh, let's give our answer to today's question going one by one. Um, we'll start with Victoria. Jeff, we'll close with you. So <laughs> our, our topic today is how can you be investable? Victoria? Well, two things that I liked that we discussed were, one, being very clearly passionate about it um, and not not like letting real that, passion? Yeah, like real <laughs> passion. Not letting that go unknown or trying to be too modest about it or, or whatever. And then the second thing is I liked what you said about um, – an idea, uh, solving your own problem mm -hmm. almost. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are many situations where you're not necessarily solving your very own problem, mm -hmm. but I think that's an interesting thing to, to think about when you're going to potentially pitch. Mm -hmm. like yep. My answer for how can you be investable, I mean, I literally have a business built around <laughs> helping people become investable via the story they tell. So, I mean, I'll have to give an answer bias, but... Can you communicate the right story to your potential mm -hmm. stakeholders? Because if they don't know what they're buying into, there's no chance in hell they are going to buy into you. So communicate clearly. Yeah, that's true. Jeff, how can you be investable? Um, you have to show that you can execute. You have to build trust in a relationship. You have to follow through. And I think you have to show... I mean, you got to show that you're excited about what you're doing, and it can't be fake. It's got to be real. Jeff Carter, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to get to know you. That wrapped up our conversation with Jeff Carter. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your experience, your journey, your story. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesomes. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform it is you listen, whether it is iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms in which you can find the show. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as Jeff's contact information and Wesley Ventures information, grab it all at discoveryourinnerawesome.com. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to Jeff Carter for joining us. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. My baby's sweet, I mean she's